before we get started with the episode, we're trying something different this week, and I'll have two guests rather than my normal one. Before everyone starts sending me DMs, I know I need to say the person's name who I'm addressing, and I will do that moving forward for these types of formats. I absolutely loved how this turned out, and I hope you do too. If you don't, I'm sure I'll be hearing from you. Let's do it. If it's something outside of your control on the macro level, that's outside of your control, right? So it's like, hey, this is what we're seeing. This is what the market, this is how we know it's outside of our control and it's market because we have these indicators, you know, self-service business is not depending on our sales execution, right? So like use that as an indicator versus things that are in your control. And then I feel like you need to own the mistakes. You need to be transparent about what you screwed up and just provide as much clarity around like, okay, how are you going to fix it? Or do you have a plan or are you like, don't show up clueless was like, oh yeah, there's this drop and we have no idea why. So we've always tried to get a lot of diligence and have the answers and kind of understand what's happening in the business. Yeah. On the mistakes, course correct and keep going. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I start basically all of these things the exact same way with one guest. So I'll read my one guest's background back to them. I'm going to read your background back to you as well. And then I'm just going to start firing away. Is that cool? Let's go. All right, let's do it. Let's see how this goes. All right, Hubert, you got your undergraduate and your MS at the University of Prague from 96 to 2002. Are you laughing at me? Almost right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I got master's in computer science. There, okay. there was no bachelor option when I was growing up in Czechoslovakia. You know, You had to do master's. You just jump right into it. And then you University, do yeah, well, whatever. Oh, go ahead. No, no, it's Czech Technical University. Okay, that's what The okay. University of Prague. Okay. That sounds like but a beer, like, that sounds sounds like a beer like university. We're really off to a good start <laughs> if your facts are this correct. Don't let the truth get in the, the way of- The company's name is Product Board. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story here, okay? You went to HP, then Autodesk, then Cabletron for a few years. Yeah, it was like a, while I was in college, I did took care of the networks and the IT support, basically, okay. early days. Then uh, Accenture in Prague, four years at Accenture as a management consultant. Yeah. Then you went to Berkeley, yeah. got your MBA. Then you went to Maestro Market? What is that? Yeah, small startup. Yeah, small startup. Not you relevant. Did, you did that for, you look so disappointed, you did that for eight months. And then you went to Good Data, you were the VP of product, employee number six there, you spent three years there? Three, four years? Four, four almost. And that was kind of the run for you that set things off. Then as of April of 2014, you were the CEO and founder of Product Board. Correct. Yeah. I started working on the company while I was at Good Data mm-hmm. with all the IP sorted yeah. out. <laughs> Different laptop. <laughs> Different laptop. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then we incorporated in April. All right. For those listening, Product Board has 500 employees, six plus thousand customers. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, has raised $262 million to date. Ilya did the seated index and then did the A at Kleiner Perkins. Yes. Right? For my first Series A that I did at Kleiner Perkins was Product Board. Dude, that's pretty cool. Okay. Sequoia did the B, Tiger, Tiger Dragoneer, offices everywhere, blah, blah, blah. Welcome to the show. Pumped to have you, man. Ilya, BS in physics from Caltech, MS in electrical engineering from Stanford, then your PhD in applied physics from Stanford. Then you went to Solar Junction, which was like a startup for a couple of years. Then you were a principal at Kosla for a year. You were one of the first 75 employees at Dropbox, head of corporate and biz dev for two years, head of product for two years. And then you joined Index, spent three years there as an investor GP, joined Kleiner Perkins in March of 18 yes, as a GP. Correct. Sit on the boards of honestly, too many companies, a lot, including product board, Slack, Intercom, or formerly Slack, Intercom, Optimizely, Cameo, UiPath, NovaCredit, Loom, Stored, et cetera. How'd I do? Was that right? That was good. Not, not UiPath, but yeah. Not UiPath. All right. That's just wrong. Okay. <laughs> I want to start with a picture and I want you to tell me 
what this picture is. Have you, have you, have you seen this picture? Oh have God. you seen this? I have seen this picture. What is this picture? And where is this from? That's me sitting in our bathroom with my two sons, Hubert the Fifth and Nicholas, on December 24th. Because there's this Czech tradition that you eat fish for dinner. And it's carp, and you go and you buy a live carp, and you put it in your tub, and then kids fall in love with it, and you fight with them that you're going to kill it for dinner. And a friend of mine who learned about this tradition like shows up in the morning, December 24th, and dumps this carp in our tub. And he got hit by the shop assistant overhead already, so he was kind of dying, but we didn't know that. The funny thing is that that's the day when I'm in the middle of negotiation of Series D financing. Literally, I signed at 6 p.m. that day. So I'm like, my mind has got somewhere completely else. And I was still like, yeah, this is great. And you sent that picture to the company? I sent it to the company. I also sent it to uh, Dragonier uh, when I was in, <laughs> you know, negotiating. It's like, dude, I have a carp in my tub. The carp is going to die. We have to sign it today. <laughs> the founder of Zoom Info sold like 40, 50% of his company for like a few hundred million at a pretty young age. And that next Monday, he's sitting in the middle row of coach and he sends a selfie to TA or whoever it was that did the deal. And he's like, this is what being a millionaire looks like. It's just, just reminded me of this, like, so not glamorous. I was sitting in, in, on, on coach, you know, flying to Jersey a couple weeks ago. It's unbelievable. It's, that's how it goes. Is it true that you couldn't quit your job at Good Data because of green card stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about this country that, you know, you get here, you're like super highly educated, you get an MBA from Berkeley and you can get your work visa. I mean, I got my work visa with a startup. It was kind of a long, long story. But you can like quit and start a company because at that moment you're not employed and just the visa situation is difficult. So I got married and got my green card and quit literally the next day so that I could go and work on product for full time. <laughs> That's what happened. That's exactly why we backed you. Right. <laughs> right, right. That tenacity in the carp. <laughs> Your great grandfather was a diplomat. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, he was a diplomat. He was a cultural attaché to Hungary, representing Czechoslovakia back then and forging relationships on the cultural level. There's this famous Hungarian poet, Jozsó Attila, who has a statue in front of the Hungarian parliament. And the story in the family is that he was fed by my great-grandfather because the poets are always poor and don't have money. So he would go there and you know, get lunch at my grandpa's house. Anyway, and, stories like that. And did he die in a concentration camp? Did that happen? Yeah, wow. that happened. Because he got imprisoned by Nazis. And like, you know, as I'm sure Ilya knows well as well, a lot of the European families during the Nazism, if you were either Jewish or if you were in any kind of political against the Nazi regime, yeah, he got unfortunately killed. And I've heard you talk about your mother very fondly. And the way that you've described her is that she was more on the soft side of things. And you attribute a lot of the ways that you run companies today and the focus that you have on marketing and some of the, in air quotes, softer sides of things to her. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, softer in the sense of empathy to people or towards people. You know, what we do is product management is fundamentally about understanding the people. Actually, the whole business is about understanding the people, the customers, right? Who are they? What is it they need? What are the biggest needs and pain points? And my mom has been always like a super high empathy person who would adjust her communication and she would get to know everybody just like based on the audience. I feel like I picked up a lot of those skills from her. I'm going to skip over most of the background stuff because I basically have a page and a half of product board questions. So if you don't mind, I just want to kind of take it from the top of product board stuff and just take it home from there. Is that right? Sure. All right. I have heard you tell a story and I can't wait to hear it that... Ilya showed up at your office, and I say office, it wasn't really an office, it was like a WeWork, right? And there was yeah. like four people? Yeah. What'd you, what'd you, first of all, how'd you hear about it? Second of all, what was going through your head when you showed up? Ilya has done a lot of investments, I want to remind you what happened. When we were talking about the round, it was like, hey, can I come to your office and kind of you know check out whether you're a real company and that there's like real people actually working, you know? Yeah, so he showed up and just, you know, had coffee with me and talked to someone, peeked into that little office. It was like a four-person office that we snuck two extra desks illegally into because we didn't want to pay. Was this the C or the A? This was the A. This, this was, was the A. at Kleiner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. this is the A. So we met when I was at Index and through actually Jan Hammer, who's a fellow Czech 
and a partner at Index and a close friend of mine. And Jan sort of introduced Hubert to me. I had a product background. I actually candidly dreamed of a product like Product Board when I was doing product. Are you just saying that or are you being serious? No, I'm serious because every company, when you start doing product, you start with like stickies on a whiteboard. The roadmap is in somebody's head. You know, product manager talked to some customers. They formed an opinion. It's in their head. You got to get it out on paper. You got to get it written down. You try every project management software. You try Google Docs, whatever Docs. Nothing really works because it doesn't capture the actual voice of the customer. And then when you're in a sales, let's say, go-to-market-led company, usually you have a loud voice on the sales team. They connect with somebody in the product team that can skew the roadmap. So you need a source of truth. So I was kind of hoping somebody would build this, and it's pretty complicated because everybody does product differently. Met Hubert. Hubert was uh, very dapper. He showed up in a suit, like a hey, Berkeley, not much has like, like a Berkeley, like the Berkeley changed. MBA. I was like, really? This guy is going to build products? Like he's got, you know, the guy's checkered button down, like suit, you know, shoes. It was very, you know, he's got the European. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I was like, yeah, it's plausible. Uh, good data, good company. He's got a good vision. I think at that point at the seat it was you and Daniel as co-founder, and maybe a few people in Prague. I think your burn was. Less than 100k a month. Oh, less, far, far less. Far it was like less. it was like tens of thousands a month. So it was like, <laughs> no, well, this, even that probably. To, yeah. Um, and fast forward to the Series A, they had gotten to like a million and a half or so of ARR, I think, on like maybe less than a million burned. Which is why I was like, I've never seen this before. I need to see if this is a real company mm-hmm. because I didn't know of any companies in the Bay Area that could get to that scale of run rate on that low of burn. And I showed up, and yeah, there was, there was real people in an office. That's so funny. Dude, when I showed up to the office at Kleiner, my first, I don't know, month, I wore a blazer and I got the same attitude from this guy and everybody else. Like, what are you doing? Why are you dressed like this? I didn't, honestly, like, I didn't notice that because, like, I was so, I was so stressed out of it about, like, hey, you know, I'm pitching this. And, like, you know, but it was awesome to know that Ilya was a product guy. Because, and that's always, since then, you know, I've talked to so many investors, obviously, who don't understand the pain points of the customers you're after. And that's such a different conversation. And so always my advice to all the founders raising money, like find somebody who knows the pain. It's like your job is so much easier. You need to persuade them that you can solve it, but you don't need to explain the, the pain, the problem. Yeah. I've heard you say that when you diligence VCs, you want to see what they're like when things are tough. Can you just expand on that a little bit? I think that... It's kind of in any relationship you're trying to envision when things go sideways, whether it's VCs or whether it's a relationship, like, are you going to be able to get along with the person when times are tough? And that's, or with your employees, when the economy goes down, like all of that, right? And so that's frequently what founders ask about, like, hey, you know, did you work with Ilya when times were tough and how did it go? And do you call people? Like, do you call people that he's worked with? Mm -hmm. What do you ask them? Well, you ask them, like, can you describe a situation when times are tough and how did Ilya react it? It's kind of like a, you know, case, behavioral interview, right? They're asking for specific examples. To Ilya's credit or like to good investors' credit, they're not afraid to introduce you to people who were in the situation. It takes guts even just like, you know, to admit that, hey, there's companies and then so the companies need to have the guts to talk to you. Guts and admit to admit that, that there's companies that didn't work out. Yeah, they yeah, work yeah, out yeah. and yeah. gone through tough times. I have also heard you say that in retrospect, you would have raised your Series A sooner. There would have been less pressure. What do you mean? Maybe that's my nature and it sounds like Ilya liked that, that we got so far with so little burn, but we just were ascetic, like so frugal that I feel like in retrospect, it hindered the speed like, you know, I was doing everything myself or like I was saving on lawyers and reading every contract and like, you know, joking that I got a JD on the side, you know, and then it's just not productive. Like you should focus on things that are going to move the needle the fastest and, you know, delegate the other stuff. And delegating means that, you know, you need to pay people. So if you have cash and you can pay people to do that less important things in the early days, that would be better. I haven't done that. I was talking to Mamoon yesterday about founders, investors, markets, et cetera. And the question that he asked me that I wanted to ask you was he said, if I had a hundred points and I had to distribute those between market, team, and product, how would I distribute those? And I'm wondering like at that point in time, what would that distribution have looked like for you? How are you weighing one versus the other? Hubert and the team versus the market they were tackling versus the product they had built at that point? Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's probably like 50% market, 40% team and 10% 10% product at any given point in time. Cause you can, if you have the right team, you can build the product, but if you're not in the right market, 
you know, you can do a lot of work. You're just not going to really get there. So a big point of diligence here was like, how big is the market for product board? And the real simple realization, this is again informed by being a Dropbox and seeing whether it's companies like Airbnb or some of the more iconic recent companies, you know, most companies are product led at the end of the day. They build a product that ultimately has some kind of interaction with a customer. And more and more, that interaction on a digital surface drives revenue for the business. So at the end of the day, product is becoming the revenue driver. The product function is becoming the revenue driver of most companies. We have, obviously, our CIO advisory forum where we meet with the CIOs of the Fortune 100 companies. All of those companies are starting to build digital products for their customers, not just tools, but actual products that people engage with. And that's how they connect with customers. That's how they tell their story. And that's how they ultimately drive revenue. And so product is becoming the major driving force in all these organizations. And if you don't have the right set of tools for product, one is you're not going to build the things that people actually want. And two, and this is actually something that I've been really fascinated by in terms of digital native companies, you don't really have a sense of opportunity cost of time. You can always build something that's better, more polished, feels nicer. But if you don't get it out on time, you're not going to generate that revenue. You're never going to recoup those dollars. And so that's where it was for me like a realization that the key insight was that it was really the single source of truth for customer needs, right? It's very customer centric. It wasn't just a project management road mapping tool. It was a, really a place where all the customer feedback was centralized, cleaned up, prioritized, tagged, and could drive a really honest roadmap for what the business needs. And then you could actually see how quickly you were delivering that. And that's how you get the right products to customers on time. And that's how you generate the most revenue. So it's like every company is going to need to do this. And every company, if you look at the company, like it's not just the product team, it's the engineering team, the design team, the management team, the sales team, the success team. It's really your business partners if you're doing a product partnership or integration who need to see this prioritized single source of truth for product data. And so it's literally like everybody should have access to something like Product Board. Uh, it's a massive market. You know how to price it. We talk about pricing and packaging quite a bit. It's Hubert's favorite topic, always. <laughs> Very thorough, but you kind of know how to price these things. And so if you build something that's a flexible system that people start relying on, then I think it answers the market question. And then with the team, you really do need somebody who's a practitioner who really understands the pain point. And in the particular case of Product Board, it was actually, I know you, you would have wanted to raise sooner, but it was an incredible asset that you built this team in Prague, this development team in Prague that was very fast moving, incredibly low cost. And so you could burn a lot less to validate what you were doing and get to kind of an interesting revenue scale that ultimately validated the market. That was a good pitch. Who ever used that? That's that I think we have that on, uh, on record here. Is it true that your father-in-law, your wife's dad, sat you down and told you that you should think about how you're going to support your family and that you have a baby and a wife that's in school? <laughs> is that true? Yeah, that's true. My uh, father-in-law is a dentist. I mean, he's retired now, dentist and... My mom-in-law is an open-heart surgery nurse. Like, they work day jobs their entire life. And I had this moment of, like, hey, I'm going to talk to them about life wisdom. And over dinner, right, I'm going to bring up this topic. Like, hey, what advice would you give me? And, like, you know, can you share from your vantage point like, what was important in life? And I got this answer. It's like... Um, well, you know, we've always been focused on making sure that the family is taken care of and that everybody's provided for. And kind of initially, indirectly, in between the lines, there was this theme of like, you should think about what you're doing. And then it came up directly as well. Like, so what are you doing? Because, uh, this is pre-funding probably. I, can, I don't remember. Is it was. true that your mom, who was also like your biggest fan, also asked you to maybe consider what else you could do? Well, yeah, I mean, it took a while at the beginning, right? And like, we just built, we were so thorough and I'm so analytical, like Ilya's alluding to pricing packages is like one example, but we've done so much research and Steve Blank, the father of Lean Startup was my professor at Berkeley and was like completely built into my DNA, the iterate and see customers, mm -hmm. pupils dilate and like have that conviction and certainty about the pain point and so on. So we've done like 13 different prototypes and we just like, you know, it was such a long time and so I had a conversation with my mom like hey it was like oh what are you thinking maybe you know <laughs> she didn't use the word pivots because like she doesn't know you know Silicon Valley lingo but there's the and, and she always was super supportive right she was just like trying to broaden my <laughs> perspective right. and it's like maybe you know. 
I mean, this type of entrepreneurship is not very common in Eastern Europe. My family still thinks I can go back to academia. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're wasting your degrees. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Dude, tell me about the founder mood meter. What is that? First of all, do you still do that? I don't. So what? That seems what unhealthy. Let's, first, first, first of all, what it is like again, being analytical is a good example. I would just spin up a Google sheet and I would put there three times a day on a scale zero to ten, kind of like an NPS score, how I feel about the viability of the business, or you know, like are we gonna are we gonna I succeed? I don't think here? I want to hear this. <laughs> are we gonna succeed here or not? And I would track it and I would plot it, you know, on a chart, and it was like up and down. Within the day, you would go from ten to like zero. And I always tell this story, it's like, it feels a little bit like, you have this new baby, it's just born and you're showing to people. And some people say like, oh my God, congratulations. This is an amazing baby, like bright future. And other people tell you like, mm, you know, it looks like hard defects and like underdeveloped lungs and six weeks, you know, maybe two months top. And that's how you feel because like you're pitching at the beginning, you know, we would talk to product managers and we would show them some of these early, early prototypes. And some people were like, this is amazing. This is exactly what I need. And so it's like, this is, you know, stupid, like never would use a product like this and it's like, move on. And so then, then you have the emotional highs and lows. Are you still doing that? No, no. And if you had to do a split between happy, neutral and miserable, where do you think like, where was most of your internal state at that point? Yeah, I mean, it was oscillating. That's why I did it, right? I have no idea why I did it because it's like, okay, what did I learn? Like, <laughs> it's like the sleep meters, like you wake up tired and so you're like, okay, I'm tired. You know, it's like the watch telling me that I didn't sleep enough. Great. Dude, you're addicted to data. You can't help yeah. yourself. But, you know, I don't do it. In, like, I kind of understand myself better. You know, I would say that the fluctuations still exist. They're just like lower highs and shallower lows because like you just become resilient. There's so much stuff that happens. And you also have people to fall onto. Like the, what I mentioned, the relationship, especially with early investors, is so important because these are going to be the people that you call with like the frustrations and they've known you the longest and you can like say it how it is, you know? I just talked to you last week and I was just like very unfiltered, like, hey, this is what's happening. What do you think? You know? So that helps. So that helps to balance it, right? You get more resilient. You have people, mentors, support network around you. So they pull you up and, you know, they help you out. To that point on support and network, you did like an AMA on Quora about, this is a long time ago, but nonetheless, there's a section and what you wrote is the confidence in the opportunity gave me the confidence to raise VC funding rather than bootstrap. I also really believe that having a boss is a good thing. And while it creates stress, it also drives focus and productivity. And so I searched for the best bosses, VCs, I could to drive me and the company hard. Then you say, do I have more gray hair because of it? (laughs) Totally. Of course I do. Do you think of yourself as like a boss? What do you make of the quote? I mean, I think it's a great quote, first of all. I think the spirit of the quote is that you do need somebody to listen to. I mean, the challenge with being the founder and CEO of a company is that you have to grow a lot faster than the rest of the organization. By default, you will have to learn faster and adjust faster and adapt faster than anybody else. And everybody else, you can kind of bring in people who are experts at the right stage. At some point, they might hit a ceiling. You'll bring in somebody else. But as a founder, the trite quote is it's lonely at the top. It really does get lonely at the top. And so you need to surround yourself with people who you can talk to, who will give you unfiltered feedback, balanced feedback. And that can be your investors, or that could be other founders who are a few steps ahead, hopefully non-competitive domains, who can be your sounding board. Because there's really nobody else to talk to. And a lot of my conversations with Hubert, like, they're just conversations. It's not Q&A or really a lot of opining. But we know each other so well at this point where and we talk about something. And I'm like, hey, sounds to me like, you know, you want to make this decision and you're just ruminating on it. And that sort of, I think, gives you the good feeling to go and do that. But it's really more of an advisory relationship. And obviously through having seen many companies, having done lots of deals, having you know, done some things on the operating side, it gives you the ability to see ahead. And our job really is to see ahead, come back with the input saying, hey, you know, there is this opportunity or this impediment coming down the line. We see it coming. Let's do something about it. I'd add to that the boss aspect that it's good to have the sense of accountability to somebody else. Even if it's not like somebody's telling you what to do, it's just like you feel that the duty and it pushes you and you just want to do well and the investor's entrusted you ultimately you know there's a return to be made right it's like that's what you do as as an investor and so i feel like it's good for people in general to have forcing functions for themselves 
So if you don't have investors and you don't feel like, okay, you know, I'm just going to go and take a month off. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, I even would never do that, right? Yeah. And, and not just because of that, you know, fundamentally, it's like you need to be driven by what, what you're doing. It's like, you know, if you don't do that, if you don't have that, no boss is going to force you. It's like general motivation thing. And there's the other aspect of it that it helps the good cop, bad cops. And then you can say like, the board is pushing us and just like helps, you know? And it's true. It's not like you're making stuff up. Like right? a stretch like, goal or something. Like, hey, we want to hit a revenue goal. The board is like going to throw us a party if we do. Like, let's see if we can do it. And you have perspective. That's a lot of time what I'm talking to Ali about, hey, how are others doing? And it's obviously difficult to compare, but there are some shareable experiences or you can learn from how others are doing. And so you know that you could do better. Because others are growing faster or, you know, executing more efficiently. And it's like, darn it, you have that comparison, like benchmarking. It's a whole entire business, right? That people make money on. Okay, true or false. You asked your wife to move into an apartment in Oakland next door to your apartment, her apartment, (laughs) so that you and the team could move in and work out of that apartment. And she slept on an air mattress and who, who, who slept in your guys' bed? So I, I mean, it looked like, you know, we needed a space, you know, we were super frugal, uh, <laughs> as I said, and I flew our early team from Prague, you know, for three months because that's what you could do on a visitor visa and we needed a place to stay and the cheapest option was to use our house that we had already, you know, two bedroom apartment as the office, but we had, you know, my wife had to sleep somewhere else, right? So, so just rented out this like completely empty one bedroom apartment that happened to be around the corner and put an air mattress there and she didn't even have where to put clothes. So she would get up in the morning and she would come change clothes for work or she was maybe at school then, so like for school and change there. You can imagine, you know, four guys, uh, what happened to the apartment and everywhere posters on the walls, just like a mess, right? So I did that. I assume that was before the series A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. when you say like, I wish I'd raised the series A sooner because there's like less pressure, I assume it's like things like this. Yeah. Even though, again, you know, some of the pressure is good. Like you're just so focused and you're so disciplined and you're just like, think about what you're doing all the time. Like you're completely consumed by it and you love it. Like, you know, it's just like such exciting time and it pushes you. You know, obviously the perception of the people around you is probably different. (laughs) It's like people are asking, like, is it fair to your partner, right? Like, you know, hey, like they have their life and they're doing their things. You're putting this pressure on everybody around you. So I feel like it's an important question and I kind of knowing what you're getting yourself into that you can be completely selfish. But, you know, I talked to my wife about it. It was like, hey, this is what I'm doing. It's like, are you going to be okay with it? And it's like, okay. Like she knew. Well, yeah, she also was in a situation where, you know, she got master's degree before international studies and then she wanted to change career. So she decided also later on to go to and become a nurse practitioner and get a master's degree. So we were kind of on the same boat a little bit. You know, we both decided like, hey, we're going to quit our jobs and we're going to do something that's going to change hopefully the future of our lives. And so she couldn't complain, you know, because it's not just me doing something else. And It's funny. I've been hanging out with the generation of entrepreneurs before you, like the generation before us. So like the Steve Cases and Scott Cooks of the world. And their reflection is always, if I knew how hard it was going to be, there's no way I would have done it. It's just so hard. And I think about that now, most people know, like as an entrepreneur, there's so much stories and data out there. I guess question one, did you know? Question two, if that's true and people do know, isn't that like from our perspective more exciting? If you know how hard it is and you're still opting into that? My experience is that what makes great founders great is that they you know, don't really dwell on the past. They sort of believe in themselves and they think they're going to be different. Might have all the knowledge in the world about how hard it is, but the best founders are like, not me. Like, I'm going to crush it. Yeah, like that was their thing. That was their thing. Yeah. yeah. Which is great. Like you want that aspiration. But building something, I mean, anything of value is incredibly hard. Like you have to work 24-7. You have to be hyper-focused, like Hubert said. We all, I think, have very amazing wives and spouses who've let us do these things, empowered us to do these things in our careers. But you have to dedicate yourself fully. And I think otherwise you just, you won't get there. So you have to be a little naive to do this. And then once you're on it, you're already on the roller coaster, right? You're on the ride. It's too late. Yeah. I would say that there's probably two things. One is 
what you're saying that you read about it and you know it, it's like you don't really know unless you live it. If you think, oh, Michael Jordan had to work extra hard to become that athlete. Like, have you tried? Have you actually done it? You have no idea. It's so hard to replicate an experience. And of course, you should educate yourself and people write these stories how hard it was. But like, you don't really know. And then you don't really think about that. That's not like, oh, this is going to be so hard. You're thinking about the problem. You're thinking about what you want to build. You're like so focused on it. As you're saying, like naive, idealistic, maybe. And the pain just comes with it, but you don't think about it. Just, I would track the mood meter just kind of like to understand where my state of mind is, but that's not the driving force, right? It's not trying to build something. Last true or false, and then we can keep moving on. Did you start eating vegetarian because your co-founder is vegetarian and you didn't want to cook two different meals at different times because it was too Yeah, it was the same. I mean, you probably get the sentiment, right? Because Daniel's vegetarian. He's been vegetarian, like co-founder and CEO his whole life. And that was during the time when we lived together. And he would make this tough work, whatever is, you know, thing. And it would take extra time for me to cook meat. And it was a waste of time. Like we needed, you know, to be building the company. And so literally like that's what it was. Like we were like every second was optimized and just focused on building the company. We knew that we had this three months that we're together in this apartment that it will have to go back to Europe and take advantage of it. So it was like super optimized. As I went down the Hubert kind of rabbit hole, which was interesting, interesting rabbit hole to go down. You had a series of blogs on Medium. Which, by the way, you should keep doing that. You're a very good writer. And you even made a proclamation that you're going to keep writing. And then you stopped writing. You didn't even write anymore. Just like the, another forcing fact function, right? Make a public commitment. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work. Anyway, one of the things that I found fascinating in this series of posts was that you created a video montage of 20 CEOs that you admire. These are like big public company or like big, fast, high growth tech companies to see how they talked. Is that right? Yeah. It's funny. I haven't thought about it somewhere else. I wanted to see all the big founders who made like, and not just like how they talk, like public speaking, but just like, what's the sentiment? What's the energy? What's the stories that they say, you know? And I wanted to learn from that. I wanted to know how they do it, but get inspired by them. And so I put together this like a set of YouTube channels in this one medium post. And I thought it was awesome. It was awesome. I, I, I still watch sometimes. I don't know if it's like motivational, but I watch like the biggest, best speeches of all times, you know, like military generals railing up troops and politicians, you know, the tale of two cities and Martin Luther King. It's just amazing. Like these people, the energy, the charisma, the passion that stems out of them. It's just so inspiring. I love it. And was that kind of a consistent theme that you spotted amongst all of them? Was there anything that you took away and you were like, all right, all of these guys or gals have this thing and I want more of this? What I'm describing is like the undisputable passion for what you do and kind of like the candid, honest, authentic representation of it. That's just like super inspiring. There's a lot of humility in it and people who are far and they can go back and you have this like different perspective and you, you have the wisdom almost. I found it inspiring. And, and, and partially it was like, hey, I, you know, I want to be motivating for my team and what is it that I need to do, like what skills and how I communicate and how I need to develop. But that passion and kind of, you know, the grit <laughs> that they had is so inspiring. For you, same question, I guess. Let's say amongst your portfolio of CEOs or like if you were watching that video, is there anything that you're looking for? Like any EQ, not IQ stuff that stands out to you or is that more like glamorized than it really is? I think to be a great founder, you have to be a great storyteller. What your storytelling sort of process is, I think can vary quite a bit, but undoubtedly you have to very clearly communicate your vision and you have to convince other people to follow you, especially when it looks really silly because you're, you know, three guys in an apartment for three months or four guys in an apartment for three months. You know, those other, let's say two guys who are not the co-founders have to going to hang out in Berkeley for four months eating tofurkey. <laughs> Maybe they get a Christmas carp down the line. But you have to really impact your passion on people. And that's frankly what I think we also look for in, in the fundraising process. Do you have the ability to convince people to fund you, to follow you, and to build the vision that, that you believe in? And I think that's true of all the great founders, all the great CEOs. They have that compelling charisma and they channel it in different ways. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't actually know the answer to this, but when I ask you what the worst quarter you ever had was, is there a quarter that comes to mind? 
Um, <laughs> I mean, I know the numbers, right? It's not just revenue. It's, I mean, you know, when COVID hit. Or- Can I be specific? Sure. What I'm curious about is you have a tough quarter. When you walk into the board meeting, what is it that's on your head? What are you thinking? What's on your mind? What are the things that you're like, all right, we've just beaten and raised our last 10 quarters in a row. Like we've created an expectation of execution and excellence that we're going to overachieve. And inevitably, shit happens. When it does, you walk in, Ilya, Andrew from Sequoia, whoever is there, like pretty badass board that you have from some pretty big venture firms. What are you thinking? Well, I would say number one, if you are delivering that message at the board meeting for the first time, you kind of failed. Yeah. That's why it's important to have the conversations on an ongoing basis and not just wait for like, oh, I'm going to reveal how we're doing, you know, this quarterly board meeting. But I think that, again, that's me. I've always been very transparent and very detail oriented. I always, get, I always get a lot of comments and it's like, oh, Hubert again shows up with 120 slides. And it's, there's a long appendix. But I think it's important to be transparent about what's happening. I believe in that and I believe in board should be informed so that they can guide you. And you know, of course, I also got that feedback, especially early on, that I shouldn't like rely on the board to make the decisions. That's my job as a CEO, right? But make sure that people are aligned directionally on the high-level decisions and strategy. If it's something outside of your control on the macro level, that's outside of your control, right? So it's like, hey, this is what we're seeing. This is what the market, this is how we know it's outside of our control and it's market because we have these indicators, you know, self-service business is not depending on our sales execution, right? So like use that as an indicator versus things that are in your control. And then I feel like you need to own the mistakes. You need to be transparent about what you screwed up and just provide as much clarity around like, okay, how are you going to fix it? Or do you have a plan? Or are you like, don't show up clueless. It was like, oh yeah, there's this drop and we have no idea why. So we've always tried to get a lot of diligence and have the answers and kind of understand what's happening in the business. Yeah. On the mistakes, course correct and keep going. And then when you read the materials, like you're reading the board materials a few days before, whatever you, you read are- it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I make it to slide 50. <laughs> He's rationalizing it with an appendix. He's like, oh, there's an appendix of 100 slides. One of the things that I think of is when the business is going really well, it's very easy to give a bunch of like pats on the back, good job, like you're doing great. And when the business is going bad, it's very easy to spot the challenges and problems and be like, what happened? That doesn't feel like good coaching. That's just not like good. I don't know. What do you think about it when you walk into a board meeting where you're like, ah, it's a tough quarter? So one, Hubert's incredibly direct, open and transparent. So I think typically when you're in a board meeting, you already have previewed the context. Most of them are really around what are we going to do as opposed to what's happening. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what is the resolution path? What should we be doing? I think I remember there was a board meeting where there were some issues on the product team. You were doing some refactor and we're like, Hubert, you got to get on the plane and fly to Prague. Sorry. (laughs) Like that's the only answer. I think you got on the plane and flew to Prague, right? Many times. (laughs) (laughs) When things are good, you actually want to look for like, how can they be great? or faster or better. We're seeing success. How do we double down on this? Things are not going well. You sort of do root cause and you try to understand, like, is it macro informed and we should adjust the plan? Is it execution oriented? We have to adjust how we're executing, what we're doing, what we're focused on. It's kind of an ongoing conversation and relationship more so than sort of these quarterly spot meetings where you have big surprises or no surprises. Yep. That makes sense. Pulling on a similar thread, You sent a letter or an email to the company, New Year's Eve of 2015. You probably don't remember this. And it was after a product market fit had been found and it was clear that the business was working and we had some really interesting customers and it was moving. And so the first call at 30 to 40% was recapping the growth of the business and how there's an incredible opportunity ahead of this business. Then you say the following, not everything went great though. I have made mistakes. I have mishired, asked you to build features that we'd scrap or redo later, changed focus a little more than I'd like to. I hope you trust me though the same way I trust you, that I have the best of intentions and that I do everything I can to learn from and recover from the mistakes that I've made. So I read that and I was like, all right. How how did you get this? I'm all over over it. That's public. It's like internal, is it? That's public. That's all public. The only thing that's internal was this picture. (laughs) (laughs) That's in your medium. That's in your medium blogs. 
It's a good post. Right. When I thought of that, I was like, all right, like, how do I push someone that's pushing themselves to this like degree where his wife's in the apartment next door, his co-founder's sleeping in his wife's bed, you know, like he's eating vegetarian food and hates tofurkey, like all these things, right? Yet he's still this critical of the business after they found product market fit and it's growing. I don't know. How do you balance that? It's like you want to make sure that he's accountable, but it's also like who's holding him more accountable than him? You know what I mean? I don't think it's as much about accountability as I think, again, Hubert and other great founders are holding themselves accountable to the highest bar and really drive themselves. It's about showing what's possible. For a while, I think you know, our biggest deal was like 5K of ARR, right? It was pretty clear, like at some point, somebody's going to come in and do a 50K deal. And then there's going to be a 100K deal and there's going to be a million dollar deal. But when you're on the ground and you just did a 5K deal, there's no way you can think about doing a million dollar deal. Right. It's just unfathomable. Right. There's so much distance, but you get a great sales leader in, you get a great salesperson, you get a great customer. They buy that. Now that's the new norm. And so it's really around connecting, showing other examples of people having achieved what you think of at the time as impossible. And that kind of resets the plateau. And I think that's the best way to do it. Why do you do that? Why do you feel the need to be so self-critical in an email like that to the company? Like, where's that coming from? Well, part of it is who I am because I just want to do things in general in the best way. The mission of the company is make products that matter together. And it's the part of, I want to live in a world where everything is great. And I hate when things are not great. When like products suck and when there's potholes in the streets and I hate the stop signs here in the US because I know that there's a better system. And they should like, in, in our neighborhood should have built a roundabout. I hate it. And that's because of my father who's always complained about everything. And, <laughs> and so I grew up surrounded in the, in the environment. And so I have this like a very self-critical perspective on things because I know that things can be better. I know it. Like there's people who are better, they're smarter, they made better decisions and you just like aspire to that. And then second, I believe that in building relationships that are really based on strong trust, like it's all about vulnerability and authenticity and nobody makes all the decisions right. And you need to admit and own your failures. If you expect it from your leaders, like you need to lead by example. And like, yeah, I mishired. I had to fire many executives right on the team because I, it wasn't the right fit. Like it was my mistake because, you know, I interviewed them and I thought like, Hey, this is going to be great. But like, you know, I misread the signals and misunderstood the needs often. There's nothing wrong about the people. It's just like, I actually didn't realize what is it we needed. And remember we talked about it so many times, like you had some of the advice you gave me like, Hey Hubert, let's just talk about what do you actually need first? Like, okay, you need a whatever CMO, but like, no, what do you need? Like, what's the profile of the person? That is the motivation, the honesty in front of the people that decided to join you like very early on, they are entrusting you with the livelihoods. Like they're spending so much time in the company. I feel like you have the duty to be truthful, honest with them and own the mistakes and celebrate the successes as well. The email was probably positive overall. <laughs> like the Slack message, I hope. Check your medium. <laughs> this is a weird question, so just bear with me. Do you get nervous now, given that it's like the sexy company with the sexy... VCs on the cap table and whatever, the people are on it for the wrong reasons. Do you know what I mean? Because A, XYZ invested or because now the business is doing this much revenue that they're coming in for not the love of the game as much as it is maybe like vanity metrics that don't matter as much. Yeah. Like I want to get product board on my resume. If you're early on and if you have no success to point to, people who join you are complete missionaries. Because there's like no mercenarism, to, like you don't get paid really. And like, you know, it's, you need to believe in the company that wanes over time and it's harder and harder and the risk level goes down. The needs change also, like you just need different people. You know, I don't like stress about it, but it is definitely something that you need to more institutionalize. We hear that like, hey, you need to focus on the mission interviews and make sure that the mission resonates with people and so on. Early on, it's kind of implicit because, again, the stage of the company, you know, people don't join you because they want to make more money than, than Google or whatever. But later on, it's like you need to check on that. I actually don't know whether we've mastered that. I feel like we still have a lot to learn to kind of have that real deep conversation with people. 
to get clarity of why they're joining. It's hard. What's been the most surprising thing for you as you've scaled? You've never seen a scaling business at this point where we are now. What has surprised you? What's been easier than you thought and what's been way harder than you thought? To your earlier point that you kind of learn and read about stories and so on, like you, you obviously hear about how difficult it is to scale and you're doing everything with many more people and you're more distant. One thing that I'm surprised by is how few people in the world actually know what to do. And you're like interviewing some of the top execs from companies that are the Silicon Valley darling brands and you leave the interviews like, this person has no idea what they're doing. <laughs> like they just happen to be Great in the right market. spot, in the right time. It's, and it's hard. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, right? Because if you're doing something new and people have never done it, maybe if I was building a simpler CRM, then you know it's easy to go and hire people who built CRM software before. And, but even then it's like, it's different. But like in our case, there's no category of product management software platforms that has been established and you can just go and, you know, hey, like we're doing this with modern UX or in the cloud and it was on premise. You know, it's just so much new stuff. Like I frequently kind of have this hope that this person will come because they've seen the bigger scale and they're gonna solve everything. It's like, no way. That's naive. It's just <laughs> co- constant disappointment. <laughs> constant disappointment, there you go. Is it weird being in this like thing where you have peers at the Series A and they raise the same fundraising and you kind of look around and the Okta founder was relaying this back to me where he talks to all of his peers, similar to what you were talking about, and he thought very highly of them. They all know better what to do than he does. And then when they go to like dinner parties and drinks and stuff they're all killing it. Like everyone's killing it, but you. Like everybody around you is killing it, but you. And then, you know, you kind of look under the hood of the car and you're like, wait a second. This is like a loosely held disaster at best. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, of course. As you're interviewing, you get to know some of the dirty laundry around the companies because people talk. And I know that other people don't necessarily have that. Like I'm in the unique position. I've interviewed hundreds of C-level execs by now, like across all the roles, right? In the last couple of years. And you learn stuff. So you kind of lose the naivety and the idealism of like, oh, these companies, everything's up and to the right. Like, you know that it's, in many cases, a shit show. That's the hard part, right? Like, of course, there's people who know what they're doing. I'm just like surprised how few. There's this theory that even at a company of the size Hewlett Packard, there's like 20 people who are making the most important decision setting the direction. Who are the people? Oh, it was on the product team that you need the people who have the product sense and who have the ability, like the product pickers. I don't know whether it was Mark Andreessen or or, uh, Ben Horowitz. I just like what Steve Jobs was like, you know, he wasn't the designer. He wasn't the engineer. He had the ability to say, this is bullshit. This sucks. Or this is great. And he had that sense. And the point is that at every company, you have few people who have this ability to make the decision, who are so intimately connected to the market, who understand the needs so deeply that they can make this decision very quickly. And then obviously, like, yeah, you fall back. The more you have these people at the company, like the efficiency gain that you get is so high because of course you can go, you know, I talk about this frequently, you can go to the market and test everything with the customers, you get feedback. That's absolutely the path that gets you to the right answer. It's also the slowest one because this is the longest feedback loop. You need to build something, you need to go to customers, you need to talk to many, right? To get like statistically significant signals and all of that. So if you have people who can make the decision and that's what you need, like you need as many of these people as possible because these are shortcuts. These are people who've seen it, who internalized it and the experience turned into intuition that is just the fastest way. That's like the, our reptilian brain, right? It's like all in, embedded in there, quick decision-making. Do you think it's, part of your job, I feel like I do this all the time where founders will just be like, I can't believe I mishired this role or that role. And I'm like, every one of these companies that are like huge, huge companies all mishired them, but actually by like way worse than you did, you know? And they also couldn't go up market as fast as you could. And they also like every single mistake that you've made, they made like in spades. And to Huber's point, like in spite of themselves, it still work. Like I find a lot of my job is like to help them with that perspective. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, and there's obviously a lot of hype out there, right? You have all these books about the greatest companies and how quickly they grew, but if you know, you look at a company like Microsoft, it compounded over decades, right? It didn't, it wasn't a multi-product company from day one. It started with one product, two products, and kind of added them over time. And so, in some ways, I think maybe founders set a little bit too high of a bar. You want them to set a high bar, but you almost set like too high of a bar and too high of an aspiration to do too many things in parallel. And a big job of 
the investor, the board is to help focus and prioritize, right? Like focus and prioritization is really the most important thing for a company at any given point in time. Every company is a disaster should show like internally. It's like loosely held disaster, but the ones that survive are the ones that can ruthlessly prioritize and reevaluate those priorities on a regular cadence. They don't lock themselves into a path that's not the right one. You know, on the hiring side, a lot of times you like as a board member, you see it miles ahead. And you're like, this is the wrong hire. But, you know, you can't like you can't just you know, sometimes you say if it's really extreme, but sometimes you kind of want to help people uh, learn and understand and, and evaluate and get to that conclusion themselves. And, you know, most of the time you do want to make folks understand that everybody mishires. And I think the people who manage it the best are the ones that make decisions quickly. And I think Hubert has done that quite a bit, like where you're like, hey, this is not the right hire. Let's not dwell on that mistake. Let's course correct. Let's adjust. I remember a conversation that, that I had with Ilya. You know, I said like, I don't feel it, but like, I leave the decision to you because we still have time. Like, if it's a mistake, we have time to recover. But then it didn't work out. <laughs> and, and then, and then the second time is like, hey, we don't have the time anymore. Like, you know, we really, no, let's not raise here. You know, and the first place was like a bet on somebody who didn't have the experience, like far from the experience that we needed, but seemed like a potential star in there. And yeah, that bet didn't work out. But second time around, okay, let's not, let's be serious. Yeah, like knowing what's a two-way door, knowing what's a one-way door, knowing which ones are the one-way doors and making sure that the founder also understands that that's tough to turn around from. I have one tactical question, then I have a few kind of fuzzy feel-goods. On the tactical question, one of the things that the business is going through right now, which is what most product-led companies go through, is going up market. And going up market comes with all its own sets of challenges. I'm curious from your perspective, again, I go back to my earlier question, like what surprised you as you go up market from a product led company to a more sales oriented company having to go tackle bigger customers? What's been the biggest surprise? I mean, there's many things that you need to change and I'm surprised by how people perceive the role of sales versus product in the process and kind of, you know, finding leaders who understand how to sell to a product-led company, to audience that starts with a product, it requires special skill set. Like, you know, you can be imposing too much. And it's hard to unlearn those skills if you had that. But, you know, if you're going upmarket, you're almost running like almost different businesses. It's like the bottom, fat, self-service, SMB, and then you get these companies where, <laughs> I mean, sometimes it seems like from a previous century, you, you have... You understand what product management is, and I was like, "Yeah, no, <laughs> like no idea." But it, you know, that's great, right? It's opportunity because, you're like, okay, we can help you. We actually know how to do it, and you know, we have the expertise, and we can show you what people do. And for all the talk, how digital transformation is changing the world, like it absolutely is, right? But it's just like it's surprising how many of the incumbent, super successful companies are completely not equipped to do a great job. And again, for us, it's a great opportunity because we can help them not just with the product, but with the product comes set of best practices and we have professional services team and we help you. And, you know, we even point out like what kind of leaders you should hire and, you know, like yeah. all of that, it's amazing opportunity. Honest question. Did you ever think we don't need sales? Like we don't need to go up market? Yes. <laughs> no. Uh, can, can I actually preface this? No. Wait, wait, wait. I, have, I want to preface this, and I'm going to leave the witness here because I actually agree with Ilya, not because we're on the same team here, but but there is another quote. And dude, there's a lot of content well, out there. I, I'm curious. Where this is, like, I have, yeah, I have a context. That okay, so you help. have a, it, I think it's on the same medium. It's in the same, I think it's in the same 2015 New Year's Eve post. You said, this is so gnarly. You said, we will need to withstand the pressure and lure of really big deals that are off our ideal target segment. I promise to guard us from spreading ourselves too thin from, as Jeffrey Moore puts it, the deadly sales-driven culture. <laughs> yeah. I mean, says Jimin. He's like sales give advisor. A, give us a no, but like, you know, this is like timing, right? I was at a... BI company, we were selling million dollar plus deals to, to large enterprises. I understood how that world looks like, but I knew that it will take time to get there. And so like early on, of course, like Eli is like, he was pushing me and others were pushing like, you know, maybe sooner, start selling sooner. That was absolutely the right push. But I didn't envision that we would be like, hey, no salespeople ever. And this is going to be always like, you know, the trial or just like pure product, not just lead, but product growth, right? No human touch. I knew that if you're selling to a large enterprise, 
you can get away without sales expertise and sales approach. You're dealing with procurement, like you need change management, all of it, right? Because I, I've had that experience, so that was helpful. The question is the timing. Like, what is the right time? Are you shooting far above your, how do you call it, your weight or whatever? Like, you know, you're punching above your weight. That's hard because that is like, if you stretch too far, if you like sell this huge sales deal purely on vision, that is impossible to get to within that time frame of the deal or, you know, within like the time frame that the customer has as an expectation, like then you screw up because like, you just like, it's a futile thing. It's like setting the company on a march that, you know, you're just not going to survive. That's the hard thing. Or if you build functionality that's like a custom feature, it's not like something that is representing a bigger market segment that is going to be reusable by more companies. If you start building like a integration for a custom homegrown application for a large enterprise, like it's not going to scale, right? So these are the decisions that, that you need to be aware of. And that's why deadly sales culture is just like, if you sell way outside of your ideal customer profile, you need to be very intentional whether you're going to build features to like satisfy the needs of that segment because you spread yourself too thin, you're going to be too slow, it's not the focus, right? All of it. I think that's fair. Different opinion or you- No, similar opinion. I mean, I think you have to sequence it, but you do have, you do, I think what a lot of like very product oriented companies don't do early enough is bring in the sales folks who will stretch you in the direction of the customer. So certainly, you know, 20... 18 like series a if we had landed a million dollar deal we would have not been prepared to service that customer in any way shape or form like that would have been the absolutely the wrong thing for the company but do you want to have sales folks who pull you from the 5k to the 15k to the 50k to the 100 like in a time sequential manner and stretch the capabilities of the product organization i think you absolutely want that and i do think i agree 100 with hubert's point uh, on the sort of the surprise you really do have fundamentally different companies when you service the enterprise and the sort of the SMB self-serve part of the market. And the trick is either you pick one or you have to manage both of those. And so you have to structurally inside the organization, build up capabilities that help you go after the enterprise and help manage the lower end of the market. And that's hard, right? But the companies who unlock that obviously can have immense potential. And I would add, you're saying that the sales team pushes your pull you up market, but you were pushing me also to hire people on the engineering product side. Right. And like product that. managers yeah. who've seen enterprise feature set and who've seen extensible platforms and so on. And do that also earlier because there's a lot of decisions that if you don't architect the product right, like it's just going to be so expensive later on and uh, you will need to rebuild a lot of stuff. And <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure if I know a company that got it right and, you know, without rebuilding things, but... Yeah, I, I remember like, like, hey, you should talk to this guy who's like an enterprise PM and who built the enterprise product at Slack, right? You know, yeah. another company. Yeah, that was helpful. In the last board deck, there was a slide that I laughed so hard. I just wanted to ask you why you did this. So he didn't get the board deck. The, no, 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 no. There is there is a trend line of perceived level of urgency to curb down spending given macro. And I'm not going to say where people were on that trend line, <laughs> yes. but it was pictures of all four board members mapped on yeah. urgent to not urgent. Yeah. So it, it, was a trend, it was a spectrum. It's like, you know, it was inspired by the New York Times, Supreme Court justices, how progressive versus conservative we are. And I was like, oh, this is a great idea because I talked to everybody one by one. Like, hey, how do you feel about the economy? This is end of Q1, right? So beginning of Q2, I think. It's like, hey, how do you feel about the prospects? You know, how aggressively should we slow down spending? And I got different answers. And so I said, like, I bet that there's going to be like a group thing. And if I just, you know, ask everybody that question in the same room, that everyone is going to gravitate towards the same answer. And so like, I'm going to drive the conversation a little bit and I'm going to challenge people. I'm going to put them on this spectrum. And so I did. I put their little images, you know, uh, so that it's cute, design, oval mask. <laughs> <laughs> and you should see, it's like the first reaction is like... <sighs> I mean, Ilya texted me like slide whatever, LOL, right? It was like <laughs> he, did, he did not do me up for this, by the way. He did not that, do that me was up. The, for this. That was the first thing, and then in the board meeting, was like, I don't think we were that far away in our opinions, and then people started like justifying. We, we, we were the, debating whether the scale is linear or nonlinear. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, we don't. We, we we kind of feel like we are all saying the same thing. It's like you guys, like. Uh, <laughs> This is hilarious. It was awesome. It was, like, it was a great slide. I, I felt like we got as a, internally, like, you know, a lot of learnings out of that exercise and then kind of creating a little bit of controversy. That is super funny. You schedule 
everything. Is that true? Yeah. Like friends and family time is in your calendar, like weeks in advance. Like it's booked out weeks in advance. Is that true? Why do you do that? Uh, it's just, you know, you're trying to balance the work life and the professional life. I don't think this is not like, is it, is it crazy? Is it, is it needing? It's just with everything that's going on and you're running a global company with time zones and you need to start planning. Like I have a yearly calendar that I do at the end of the year. Like, hey, these are the goals with my family. This is the trips that we want to take. This is like, you know, any big milestones. And then I go from there and I try to make sure that I allocate the time. Because for me, the process and the framework is kind of what I fall back on in terms of feeling good about allocation of time because if you don't have that outline and if I kind of don't make the commitment that this is the time I want to spend with the family, the work life is always shorter term than the personal life and the short term things feel more urgent. And so it's always easier to prioritize like, oh, this is critical for tomorrow or next week while your kid is going to be around. Yeah, if I don't spend the evening tonight, I can spend it tomorrow. But then in the aggregate, you end up looking back and it's like, shoot, I haven't seen my kids, you know, in a year. So it's just like a tool that helps me be a good father and a husband uh, in addition to hopefully running a successful company. You've said that the hardest part of entrepreneurship is being present and protecting your family from extreme startup stress. Kind of in the same vein? In the same way and a little bit of what I mentioned earlier that it's not fair to bring too much of the work stress to the people around you. And then also the other thing it's, you know, you inevitably end up comparing your stress level to the stress level of other people. And you forget that your child who's six is stressed in the same way about not being too able to watch the show right now as you are about having a parting conversation with the C-level exec or just like completely restructuring the company. On the absolute scale, obviously, restructuring company and firing exec is much more complex, nuanced thing and you know requires more resiliency and expertise than being or not being able to watch a show. But relatively in that person's situation, it isn't. It feels the same. So I'm trying to be sensitive to it. And I don't always succeed when I try. All right, one more question on this. Well, Hubert the fifth was born... Was there a feature in Product Board that... <laughs> there was, yeah. So Hubert, the, when we were expecting a baby, we created a... Inside our internal Product Board, there was a feature that was planned like to be released. <laughs> and it was Hubert the fifth. <laughs> or there was a baby because we didn't... Oh, I don't know whether we put the name. I mean, I kind of knew that it would be Hubert. My wife tried to challenge me until like the last second, like, don't name him Hubert. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, and there was a little emoji, you know, the That's little the baby. Fun. And we launched it and celebrated. Feature complete. <laughs> Feature complete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe uh, it was a product because we have like a whole product hierarchy. You can have multiple products because we support complex product portfolios. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a vacation. A whole, whole product. Schedule that in. Not just a feature. I appreciate this, fellas. This was fun. Hubert, thank you for the time. I could keep going, but unfortunately we can't. I asked the same closing questions. The first is, are you hiring? I know we're hiring. So like, what are you hiring for? Any key roles that you want to shout out? Yeah, we're hiring so many roles. Senior roles, senior vice president of customer success, somebody to come and lead customer success organization, somebody who's got experience in the enterprise. It would be awesome. We're hiring senior vice president for engineering. We're hiring revenue, head of revenue marketing. We're hiring products, VPs in Europe and here, growth product people. There's <laughs> hiring sales uh, executives. Oh, <laughs> like, hey. We're hiring across the board. Sales. Yeah, there's yeah. a, there's a. What's the best way to, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask what's the best way to like apply, reach out to you. There's a website or people can, obviously the, you know, senior people reach out to me, feel free to ping me directly. Or just go through Ilya. Just ping Ilya. Ping Jimin. Ping Jimin. When you hear the word grit, what comes to mind? In the light of everything that we talked about, it's the courage to keep going no matter how how much adversary you're facing. Do you have the courage to fire somebody who's like a super good friend of yours and a good human being because the needs of the business has evolved and it just is not a good fit? Do you have the courage to go to yet another uh, VC meeting after you've been told no 50 times, you know, do you have the courage to yeah, answer very difficult questions in front of the company in a vulnerable way? Do you have the courage to have 
difficult conversation with a customer who's telling you, hey, sorry, I'm going to leave. And this is a heartbreaking because you just like, you pour it all your heart into this product and you want uh, the customers to love the experience and they're saying it sucks. You know, one thing I would say that has been kind of a thing I learned is there's few people who know the nuances of your business, like who know what we're doing and, you know, product management specific, you know, market uh, issues. But there's a lot of people that you can lean on when it comes to people issues. And you should be surrounded by mentors who help you with all the personal struggles and the bigger the company, the more people issues you're facing. And I realized that you don't need to rely on people who like build a B2B SaaS company of similar type for that kind of advice. You can talk to people who are in their 80s and don't know anything about tech, but they know everything about the struggles of interpersonal relationships and navigating difficult conversations. Then they help you, right? Like if you can fall back on them or if you can rely on their advice and then that, you know, having the grade to go through these conversations is much easier. That's a hell of an answer. Thank you both. That was fun. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. 